Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. So um, my second talk, I'm aware, is a little bit more um, advanced. The first talk was quite introductory, so um, do try and stay with me, but we're going to enter some uh, slightly tougher, slightly more complex waters. So don't worry if some things go over your head, and I'm happy to respond to things in, in the questions as well. So in the first talk, I think um, we could agree um, that, uh, especially given his own vocation. Dante was particularly attracted to the passionate intellects that we find in his poem, whether it be the outstanding pagan philosophers whom we discover in hell, or the great Christian theologians and philosophers whom we meet in the heaven of the sun, the heaven of Christian wisdom. To whom of these great thinkers, though, was Dante most influenced by in his intellectual development and thought. In the limbo of the virtuous pagans, Dante clearly acknowledges Aristotle as the master of those who know, as his authority par excellence in philosophy. In the heaven of the wise simile, Dante appears to acknowledge Aquinas as his authority in theology, a Christian science which comprises the truths of revelation from above as well as the truths of a reason alone from below, giving to St. Thomas more words than that of any other character in the Commedia, save Virgil and Beatrice. Moreover, in his prose work, The Convivio, Dante likewise singles out St. Thomas Aquinas as his master, modelling himself explicitly on the good friar Thomas Aquinas, who entitled one of his works, written to refute the arguments of all those who deviate from our faith against the Gentiles, the Summa Contra Gentiles. In these and in other ways, Dante seems to invite his readers to gloss his poem with Aquinas. The first commentators on Dante's Commedia dutifully obliged, quoting liberally from both the Summa Theologiae and the Summa Contradentiles, as well as drawing on his other writings, including his Aristotelian and biblical commentaries. Take, for, for example, Jacobo de la Lana's commentary on the Commedia, written shortly after Dante's death in 1321, so the commentary dates from around 1324 to 28. This commentary contains well over 80 quotations from Aquinas and by one estimate, over 380 direct and indirect references to Aquinas in total. From the early 14th century commentators on then, there developed a venerable and majority tradition of reading Dante and Aquinas together. The canonization, as it were, of the Thomist Dante is illustrated in the early 20th century by Pope Benedict XV's encyclical on Dante, in Preclara Sumorum, published on the sixth centenary of Dante's death in 1921. This is what it says, part of it. Dante lived in an age which inherited the most glorious fruits of philosophical and theological teaching and thought and handed them on to the succeeding ages with the imprint of the strict scholastic method. Amid the various currents of thought diffused then too among learned men, Dante ranged himself as disciple of that prince of the school so distinguished for angelic temper of intellect, St. Thomas Aquinas. From him, he gained nearly all his philosophical and theological knowledge. And while he did not neglect any branch of human learning, at the same time, he drank deeply at the founts of sacred scripture and the fathers. Thus he learned 
almost all that could be known in his time, and nourished especially by Christian knowledge, it was on that field of religion he drew when he set himself to treat in verse of things so vast and deep. However, almost a century later, the Dante scholar John Took would claim that perhaps the single most important accomplishment of 20th century Dante scholarship, certainly in the area of philosophy and theology, was the separating out of Dantean and Thomist spirituality, concluding that well before the end of the century then, the myth of Dante's Thomism has, as a result of these and of similar interventions, been put to rest. So in this, my second, as I said, a bit more advanced talk, I'm going to explore how and why in the past hundred years, the position of Pope Benedict XV's encyclical that Dante gained nearly all his philosophical and theological knowledge from Aquinas has been largely discredited. And in its place, there has emerged a consensus view documented, for example, by Simon Gilson in his review of the Status Questionis in 2013, that there are many areas of opposition between Dante and Aquinas, and that it is quite impossible to ignore the divergences between them. These are numerous and often of considerable philosophical and theological magnitude. First, I'm going to tell the story of the rejection of the Thomas Dante in the 20th century through the context, scholarship and influence of one rather remarkable English Dominican, Father Canon Foster, 1910 to 1986. Second, I'm going to scrutinise two major discrepancies Foster and other scholars of his generation perceived between Aquinas's and Dante's thought. And I'm going to argue that these are more apparent than actual and have to do with dubious interpretations of Aquinas's thought itself. Third, I would demonstrate how Foster's overly literalist approach to Dante's poem underpins his identification of problematic relationships between reason and revelation, nature and grace, and pagan virtue and pagan salvation in Dante's Commedia, as well as his celebrated account of two Dantes, of a problematic tension in Dante's psyche itself, between his love of pagan philosophy, poetry and humanism on the one hand, and his commitment to Christianity on the other. Fourth, I'm going to argue that the Thomist Dante position, though dismissed as a myth, has, like many myths, a great deal of truth to it, and that the practice of reading Dante and Aquinas alongside one another, especially when considering their theology and philosophy, is both valid and fruitful. Okay, so first of all, Kenan Foster and the myth of the Thomist Dante. To understand Kenan Foster's approach to Aquinas and to Dante, it is worth giving a brief account of his rather unusual intellectual formation. Kenan Foster's father had converted to Catholicism while an undergraduate at Peterhouse College, Cambridge, and consequently, Kenelm was educated at Catholic prep and secondary boarding schools, first St Mary's Lodge, followed by Downside. He obtained a scholarship at Christ College, Cambridge, and graduated with a first and the offer of a fellowship. Having met Father B. Jarrett, however, he declined the prestigious college fellowship in order to become a Dominican. He therefore went to the Dominican Priory of Hawkshead to start his study of philosophy. Foster appears to have responded badly to what Father Aidan Nichols has subsequently characterised as the purely Catholic diet of Aristotle, dubbed an honorary papist, Aquinas and Père Reginald Garagou-Lagrange as their intellectual beau ideal for a friar preacher, then current at the Dominican Priory. This may provide some context for Foster's particular association of Thomism with a narrow philosophical system and his distaste for it as such, as well as for his failure to proceed to a theological degree in a teaching career in the order, as might have been expected for someone of his intellectual calibre. Instead, in the 1940s, 
Foster took a doctorate in modern and medieval languages in Cambridge and then became a lecturer and subsequently reader in Italian studies, continuing to teach and mentor scholars until his death in 1986. Foster became the post-war authority on Dante's theology in both English and Italian scholarship. It's a remarkable achievement in that time. Entrusted, for example, with the most important theological entries in the Encyclopedia Dantesca, 1970-78, big encyclopedia of Dante studies, on Christ, God, theology, the gospel, Aquinas, and the Summa Contra Gentiles. How then does Kenan Foster approach the relationship between Aquinas's and Dante's thought in his scholarship? First of all, and perhaps in keeping with his training at Hawks at Dominican Priory, Foster distinguishes quite sharply between Dante's philosophy and his theology with an emphasis on the former. Like the Oxford Dante scholar Edward Moore, who effectively traces Dante's astonishing knowledge of the contents of the various works of Aristotle, Foster sees Dante as fundamentally an Aristotelian in philosophy. For Dante, Aristotle is il maestro, the master, il filosofo, il maestro e duca della ragione umana, the master and guide of human reason. Il maestro di color che sanno, the master of those that know, the magister sapientium par excellence. Foster also situates Dante's Aristotelianism within the competing philosophical currents of his time. The influential scholars Bruno Nardi and Etienne Gilson had considered Dante essentially an avarist in philosophy. Gilson writing to Nardi that Dante holds in theology Thomas doctrines and in philosophy Averroes doctrines. By contrast, Foster considered that Dante owed a particular debt to Aquinas precisely as a philosopher. His formation as, as an Aristotelian came principally through Aquinas and that Dante certainly knew Aquinas's commentaries on the Nicomachean Ethics, the Physics, and De Cello et Mundo, and probably those on the Metaphysics and De Anima on the Soul. At the same time, Foster acknowledges that primacy does not imply exclusivity, and that Dante also drew on a range of other philosophical authorities in addition to Aristotle. He broadly accepts then Bruno Nardi's evidence for the influence of Neoplatonism, of a debt to Avicenna, and of specific debts to Albert the Great. And in light of this, Foster concludes that it has become increasingly evident that Dante cannot be called a Thomist in any strict sense of the term as denoting a body of doctrine characteristic of St. Thomas. In doing so, Foster explicitly situates his understanding of the status questionis in opposition to two Dominicans, Cordovani and Mandone, and one Jesuit, Busnelli, and as following the pioneering labours of the two lay scholars, Bruno Nardi and Gilson's brilliant book, in his view, Dante et le Philosophie. While Foster describes Nardi's lifelong effort to detach Dante from Aquinas by expounding the poet's philosophy as a variant on the Neoplatonist tradition with traces, especially in the monarchy of avarism, Foster maintains that Dante was certainly not an anti-Thomist either. Rather, Dante was in love with the truth and was not overly preoccupied with the occasionally fierce debates on points of philosophical doctrine between defenders of Aquinas' synthesis on the one hand and opponents on the other. Foster's understanding of the key similarities and differences between Dante and Aquinas is as follows. Foster lists five areas of affinity, key areas of affinity. First, the distinction between philosophy and theology, alongside the conviction about a fundamental harmony between these two ways of knowing truth. Second, belief in the unity of the soul-body composite in man, Third, an intellectualist approach to the problem of the will. Fourth, the hierarchy of the human faculties. And fifth, the nature of beatitude. Foster also highlights three positive points of difference between Dante and Aquinas. First, prime matter apparently created in the beginning devoid of form. Second, Dante's depiction of the angels directly involved in moving the heavenly bodies. And most significantly, Dante's division of human life under two final ends, duo ultima. At a negative level, Foster also maintains that Dante fails to take up two of the most original aspects of Aquinas's thought. 
First, the distinction between essence and ex existence in creatures and their identity in God, ipsum esse subsistens. And second, Aquinas's, in his view, original conception of the intellectus agens, the agent intellect, which abstracts the intellectual species from the material form as the distinctive function of the human intellect. For Foster, then, Dante's universe was neither Thomist nor anti-Thomist, and was instead a rather uneasy synthesis of Neoplatonist and Aristotelian elements. In terms of Dante's theology, Foster argues that Dante not only had a great admiration for St. Thomas as a holy man and saint, albeit not yet officially canonised in Dante's lifetime by the church, but that he is his greatest authority in matters of sacred doctrine in the Commedia. Nonetheless, Foster argues that there persists in the Commedia oppositional relationships between reason and revelation, between nature and grace, that once again set Dante apart from Aquinas. Foster also claims that a parallel tension persists in Dante's own psyche between two loves or two principal concerns. Dante was caught being uh, between being a humanist, a lover of poetry, naturalists, politics, philosophy, and a Christian, a lover of God, a penitent, a theologian. And Foster especially locates this tension in Dante's relationship to Virgil, the tragic damnation of Virgil, and the necessity for specific miracles to save Riffius and Trajan, the exceptions who prove the rule, demonstrates for Foster that Dante opposes Aquinas' theory of implicit faith. Meanwhile, the invented location of Virgil, the limbo of the virtuous pagans, and Dante's nostalgia for Virgil when he leaves the scene in purgatory demonstrates in Foster's view that Dante was overly attached to pagan culture, the humanist side of his double identity, and willing to risk heresy in defending it. So Foster appears to take a balanced and nuanced approach to the question of Dante's Thomism. Neither an exaggerated clerical Thomist Dante position in its crudest form, Dante, as Aquinas in verse, nor an exaggerated anti-Thomist position as polemically pursued by Bruno Nardi. But was Foster right to turn his back on the Thomist Dante at all? Was Foster right to give even the ground he did to the likes of Nardi and Etienne Jusson? So now... Two, Foster's contentious reading of Aquinas. Let us first consider two of the major doctrinal discrepancies Foster perceived between Aquinas and Dante. First, Dante's apparently non-Thomistic thesis that man does not have a natural desire for the beatific vision. And second, Dante's apparent failure to communicate the most original aspect of Aquinas's thought, the identity of essence and existence in God and their distinction in creatures. So first, the natural desire for the beatific vision. Kenan Foster considered as Dante's most evidently non-Thomistic thesis that man does not have a natural desire for the beatific vision. In making this claim, Foster cites Dante's Convivio 3.15. What... God is, is not something we naturally desire to know. And for contrast, Aquinas's Summa Contra Gentiles, the natural desire to know does not rest in that knowledge of God, whereby we know merely that he is. There are two issues here, one about Foster's interpretation of Dante and the other about his interpretation of Aquinas. With regard to Convivio 3.15, Foster ignores the procedural point that in this passage, Dante is approaching the question philosophically, not theologically, and is responding to a specific objection to the earthly happiness, the life of philosophical contemplation, he is describing. Namely, how can philosophical wisdom make a man happy if there are objects of the intellect which he knows exist, but which he cannot know perfectly. In other words, know them by their essence. And Dante argues as follows. First, natural desire is proportioned to the capacity of the agent desiring. Second, 
Nature would be in vain if an agent, in desiring its perfection, were to desire its imperfection. Third, knowledge of God's essence, not that God exists, but what and who God is, is not proportionate to human nature and is only naturally proportionate to God, and therefore, for we do not naturally desire the beatific vision to see God face to face. The second issue is that Foster takes Aquinas' position on this question, the natural desire for the beatific vision, as self-evident, whereas, in fact, it was one of the most contentious problems in the history of 20th century Catholic thought. And he quotes as evidence for it two passages from Aquinas' Summa Theologiae and Summa Contra Gentiles, where Aquinas is approaching the same question theologically. In De Veritate, Aquinas' treatise on truth, by contrast, Aquinas speaks of the beatific vision as exceeding the proportion of human nature because the natural powers are not sufficient for attaining or thinking or desiring it, a position in harmony with Dante's philosophical position in the Convivio. As the historian Frederick Cobbleston comments, St. Thomas in De Veritate does not admit a natural desire in the strict sense for the vision of God. And it seems only reasonable to suppose that when in the Summa Theologica and Summa Contra Gentiles, he speaks of a natural desire for the vision of God. He is not speaking strictly as a philosopher, but as a theologian and philosopher combined, that is, presupposing the supernatural order and interpreting the date of experience in the light of that presupposition. In this regard, the philosopher Ralph McInerney highlights Cayetan's distinction between two ways of considering man's desire for the beatific vision. First, as pertaining to man's nature, it is not natural. Second, as pertaining to man ordered to a supernatural end, it is natural. Aquinas's passage in De Veritate should be understood in the first sense, as should Dante's passage in Convivio 3.15 whereas the passages in the Summa Theologiae and Summa Contrentiles should be understood in the second sense. Rather than a necessary and certain contradiction between Aquinas and Dante, then, what is at stake here are two rival interpretations of Aquinas's thought itself, as well as on the part of Foster, an interpretative failure to account for the procedural distinction common to the 13th and 14th centuries between speaking philosophically and speaking theologically. As with the key positive differences that Foster traces between Aquinas and Dante, moreover, so with the negative ones. What Foster presents as the most original aspect of Aquinas's thought, the distinction between essence and existence in creatures and their identity in God, ipsum esse subsistence, is rather what the historian Etienne Gilson considered to be original to Aquinas, and what the Thomistic school, the Dominican order, and especially Cardinal Cayetan, had failed on Gilson's view to recognise. But, as McInerney again points out, the Thomist, who would make the real distinction between essence and existence unique or original to Thomas, must face the considerable difficulty that Thomas does not agree with him. Thomas himself attributes knowledge of this distinction to Aristotle, Boethius and others. If this distinction is not Pace Gilson, the key innovation of Aquinas' thought, the claim that Dante does not prioritise or emphasise this doctrine does not indicate that there is a clear divergence between Aquinas and Dante in this negative respect either. So we've seen to conclude this section that these two apparently major discrepancies between Aquinas' and Dante's thought identified by Kenan Foster and other scholars of his generation are more apparent than real. Foster interprets Aquinas' thought on the natural desire for the beatific vision along the lines of Henri de Lubac's thesis in Le Mystère du Surnaturel, 1965, 
an interpretation which leads Foster and others to see Dante's own thesis as, quote, clearly opposed to Aquinas. However, de Lubac was reacting against the mainstream Thomas tradition, according to which man is made for a natural happiness in such a way that if he is called to the vision of God as he is, such a grace can only be superadded. The theory thus denies that man has a natural desire for supernatural beatitude, the aspiration for which is due to a grace specifically Christian. Restore this interpretation of Aquinas, and the clear opposition between Aquinas and Dante disappears. As with the positive differences, so the negative ones. Thus Foster was surely wrong to accept Etienne Gilson's claim that the distinction between essence and existence in creatures and their identity in God, ipsum esse subsistence, was Aquinas' most original and substantial contribution to philosophy. And consequently, Foster was also wrong to claim that Dante was non-Thomist for failing to underline this already well-established doctrine in his poem. Okay, Foster's literal framework for reading Dante and its consequences. What then about Foster's identification of problematic relationships in Dante's Commedia between nature and grace, reason and revelation, pagan virtue and pagan salvation, and even between two Dantes, one attached to pagan humanism, the other to Christianity? Underlining Foster's anxiety about Dante's orthodoxy in these respects is a tacit but highly questionable assumption that the literal sense of Dante's poem is always true or intended to be interpreted as such. As I've shown in detail elsewhere, this assumption pervades post-war Dante criticism, whether the Commedia is understood as a mystical vision, Bruno Nardi, figural fulfillment, Eric Auerbach, or according to the allegory of the theologians, Charles Singleton and Robert Hollander. However, this whole hermeneutical framework is arguably mistaken. If, in fact, Dante's Commedia is written according to the allegory of the poets, what is primary throughout is not the fictional sign, but the truth signified. In this light, let us reconsider these supposedly problematic aspects of Dante's poem. Foster's hermeneutical commitment to the truth of the literal sense of the Commedia leads him to consider Dante's teaching on pagan virtue and pagan salvation as at odds with Aquinas' thought. That, in placing adult pagans in limbo, Dante actually believed, first, that an individual pagan could be morally impeccable, so morally without sin, and second, that an individual pagan without some exceptional miracle is necessarily damned. According to Foster then, Virgil and Dante's limbo of the virtuous pagans as a whole seems to embody a kind of human perfectibility without healing grace, gratia sanans, which he finds theologically unacceptable and incompatible with Aquinas' thought. Similarly, Dante's apparent damnation of pagans with only a few miraculous exceptions goes against Aquinas' sophisticated and expansive theory of the possibility for all pagans of implicit faith. From the interpretive perspective of the allegory of the poets, however, Dante's imaginative creation of a limbo of the virtuous pagans, which so vexed Foster and subsequent critics, is not intended as dogmatic eschatology at all. In other words, to imply that such a state actually exists for pagans in the afterlife. Indeed, it had been customary from the earliest commentators to interpret this strange section of Dante's limbo only according to its figurative or doctrinal sense, poetice, and not literally as dogmatic theology, theologice. The dogmatic truths here reside only in the signified and not in the signifier. Theologically, the relative autonomy of philosophical truth, the moral law and the human arts as preeminently of poetry. Morally, 
the necessity of belief in Christ for salvation such that a living non-believer already exists in a moral hell, living in desire without hope. Given what Dante would have known about their lives, it is highly implausible, I think, that he would have believed that the historical Virgil and the other adult inhabitants of Limbo literally did not sin in their earthly lives. The heterodox view of moral impeccability goes against common sense and was explicitly ruled out as shameless presumption and mistaken blundering by St. Augustine and as a simple impossibility by St. Thomas Aquinas. In terms of pagan salvation, Dante finally makes clear in the heaven of Jupiter and Saturn that the destiny of particular pagans is known to God alone. In other words, although at the level of the poetic fiction, Virgil's doctrinal significance, the natural order, necessitates his location in limbo as apparently morally impeccable and spiritually damned, this does not mean that Dante actually believed that the historical Virgil and the other inhabitants of Limbo literally did not sin in their earthly lives, which after all is obviously false. Interpreting the Commedia according to the allegory of the poets as was prevalent until the early 20th century, the dogmatic theology hidden under the fiction of Dante's poem is not necessarily opposed then to Aquinas' teaching at all. This leads us to reconsider, finally, the coherence of Kenan Foster's claim that there were two Dantes, as in his seminal collection of essays with that title of 1977. For Foster, there is not just an oppositional relationship between nature and grace and between reason and revelation in Dante's work, but also a parallel tension within Dante himself between two loves, two principal concerns. As I said, Dante was caught between being a humanist, a lover of poetry, natural ethics, politics, philosophy, and a Christian, a lover of God, a penitent and a theologian. A dichotomy represented in the poem, according to Foster, in Dante's competing loves for Virgil and Beatrice. On one level, there seems to be a mistaken inference here that just because one has more than one role, these roles must be in necessary tension. After all, that St Thomas Aquinas wrote philosophical works, such as his long commentaries on Aristotle's ethics, physics, metaphysics, and on the soul, as well as theological works which draw on this philosophy, most notably the Summa Theologiae and the Summa Constantiles, does not imply that St Thomas was less a Christian or even a crypto-pagan in writing the former, or indeed that there were two Thomases, one an Aristotelian philosopher and the other a Christian theologian. Rather, philosophy is an important field of knowledge in its own right, as well as being the handmaid of theology, Ancilla Theologiae, part of the doctrine which makes up and in the scholastic curriculum prepared for the study of theology. Similarly, one might say, Dante's Virgil and Beatrice enable him to represent poetically the relationship in the speculative field of knowledge between truths from reason and truths from revelation. Truths which find in Christian theology, in Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, as in Dante's Commedia, their integration without thereby losing their distinction. Nonetheless, was Dante, at least in some stages of his life, overly attached to philosophy and poetry? And did these pursuits distract him from the pursuit of theology? There could be something in this. And certainly many early commentators, including Dante's son Pietro, who wrote three commentaries, three Latin commentaries on his father's poem, filial piety, right? Uh, interpret Dante's confession to Beatrice in the earthly happiness. Uh, interpret Dante's confession to Beatrice in the earthly paradise somewhat in these terms. But it also seems to me that Kenan Foster in this respect fell into a Dantean version of T.S. Eliot's Hamlet paradigm whereby each Shakespearean critic interprets Hamlet in his or her own image. So in this case the Dante critic reads Dante in his own image. Foster's fellow Dominican, Bede Bailey, 
highlights that as a young man beginning philosophical study at the Dominican Priory of Hawkshead, Foster was already learned and cultured, an artist and poet, and more educated than some of his teachers, and that he subsequently identified with the Catholic poet-priest Gerard Manley Hopkins, perhaps sharing the poet's tension between his religion and artistry. Even in his relatively early essay on Dante, Dante as a religious poet, Foster claims that most religious people are not, except in remote potency, poets. And most poets are not, except in remote potency, religious. And that when found together, a certain overlapping of interests causes tensions and problems varying with the circumstances and characters of the religious poets themselves. For the English Jesuit Hopkins, there was a tragic moral tension between poetry and his priestly vocation. For Dante, according to Foster, there was no question of sacrificing poetry to religion, as for Hopkins, but rather of sacrificing one sort of poetry of secular inspiration to another sort of religious inspiration. In Dante too, Foster writes, there was a certain tension between the poet and the believer. The two sides of him drew gradually together, but not always easily or evenly. With regard to the, for Foster, problematic relationship in Dante's Commedia between nature and grace, reason and revelation, pagan virtue and pagan salvation, we have seen that this is principally due to Foster's defective interpretive approach to the Commedia, with it at the time common and still common, frankly, overemphasis on the literal sense of the poem. If one reads the Commedia according to the allegory of the poets, the apparent discrepancies between Dante's thought and that of Aquinas in these respects as well substantially disappear. Foster's theory of the two Dantes is also, in my view, misleading. It is true that as Dante documents also in the Convivio, his love of philosophy and his love of sacred doctrine figured as two ladies, the Donna Gentile, Lady Philosophy, and Beatrice, might say Lady Sacra Doctrina, could come into competition. Only one of these ladies could command his soul at any one time. It may also be that, as some of the early commentators suggested, Dante became overly absorbed in his study of poetry and philosophy to the exclusion of a study of sacred doctrine at some stage in his life. However, this does not imply a lack of unity in the subject of knowledge, Dante himself, but rather an apparent intellectual moral failure of discernment or prudence in proportioning his objects of study. Foster seems to infer, however, that to follow the study of classical poetry and philosophy is to be attached to paganism. This, it seems to me, is an anachronistic prejudice given the Christian pagan syntheses of classical literature of the time and the institutionalized study of philosophy in the faculties of the arts, a necessary condition for all university theologians, not least St. Thomas Aquinas himself, who was, of course, a master of philosophy as well as a master of theology. We're nearly there. Four. Edward Buller Pierre Mandelet, and reappraising the Thomas Dante. Thus far, I've sketched the reception history of the Aquinas-Dante relationship in the 20th century through the scholarship of Kenan Foster. And I've sought to demonstrate that the key discrepancies between Aquinas' and Dante's thought identified by Foster and others to dismiss the Thomas-Dante position as a myth are more apparent than actual, arguably having to do in fact with contentious interpretations of Aquinas's thought on the one hand and a defective understanding of Dante's hermeneutics on the other. Let us now consider and reappraise in the concluding section, therefore, the very different scholarly consensus of a fundamental harmony between Aquinas's and Dante's thought in the generations of Catholic theologians and Dante scholars preceding the interventions of Kenan Foster, Etienne Schilson and Brunardi, amongst others, in the 20th century. Kenan Foster was himself introduced to Dante by the lay Dominican Edward Buller, 1880-1934, a convert to Catholicism who had become the Cambridge Chair of Italian in 1933. As is clear from the title of Buller's 1924 lecture, Dante, the poet of St Thomas, 
with its favourable citations of the French Dominicans Mandanin Bertier and the Jesuit Busnilli, amongst others, Buller followed the Catholic and clerical Thomas Dante interpretive tradition, subsequently rejected, as we've seen, by Foster. In his lecture, Buller affirms that Dante is not just the St. Thomas of poetry, as Frederick Ozenham held, but the poet of St. Thomas. Citing Pierre Mandonet, Buller claims that the neglect of the teaching of St. Thomas during the centuries between the Renaissance and the 19th century by laymen, the large majority of Dante commentators, was the sole cause and explanation of the strange darkness which until recently overspread the fundamental and essential problems of understanding Dante's poem. The remedy is not for Buller a question of pointing out haphazard parallels between passages of the Divina Commedia and statements of St Thomas, still less of suggesting that the Commedia simply aversified St Thomas. Instead, and taking his lead from Pope Benedict XV's 1921 encyclical on Dante in Preclarus Humorum, Buller claims that an ever deeper knowledge of Aquinas's philosophy and theology enables one to enter into the very root and source of Dante's intellectual life, and vice versa, that the more one comes to study and understand Dante properly, the more one will be irradiated by the glorious fruits of philosophical and theological thought, the splendours of truth. Buller's claim that ignorance of Aquinas' theology and philosophy leads to fundamental misunderstandings of Dante's poem echoes the claims made by learned religious such as Busnilli, to whom he directly refers. In 1921, the year of Pope Benedict XV's encyclical on Dante, Busnilli claims that not just students, but professors and Dantisti, such as Brunardi, with whom Busnelli had a long dispute, had fallen into erroneous expressions and false concepts through ignorance and in many instances hostility to the Catholic faith, whether re with regard to the content or form of Dante's Commedia. The various distortions of Dante's thought are for Busnelli symptoms of a wider lack of sound instruction in the Christian faith caused by atheist programs of public instruction. For Busnelli, this inadequate formation leaves students and professors ill-equipped to appreciate or understand either the philosophy or the theology of Dante. And as we've seen, even the post-war authority on Dante's theology in English and Italian scholarship, Kenan Foster, had a rather peculiar intellectual trajectory within the Dominican order of the English province, failing to go on to theological studies in Rome. The papal Dominican Cordovani, similarly lamented in 1921 the widespread ignorance of the Catholic faith and her theology amongst both students and professors of Dante. It leads students, he suggests, to focus narrowly on only the surface level of the poem and even on a few celebrated narrative episodes as of Francesca or Vugolino. To consider only the literary aspect of the comedian in this way is, as Mandane put it, to impose the flaying of Marcias on Dante, leaving one, in effect, with an ornamental bedside rug, the skin of a lion, rather than a great living organism, the lion itself. Many students and professors, indeed, end up ignoring what the poem is principally about, God, its purpose being to lead readers from sin and ignorance to perfection of life and knowledge of God. For Cordovani, this lack of theological formation also leads professors to consume themselves with endless historical and contextual researches on minor points in the poem and to fail to appreciate Dante's thought and poetry as a whole, and crucially, in due proportion. Looking back on 20th century Dante scholarship, we might acknowledge this interpretive issue of proportionality over the past hundred years, whether in relation to one word, cui, in one canto, Inferno 10, which Singleton called the most tortured relative pronoun known to literary exegesis, or with regard to the single tetsina in Paradiso, adopted by Foster as a proof text that Dante's universe was not a Thomas one, but representing just one fiftieth of one percent of the poem. I believe, therefore, that it is well worth revisiting with an open mind the arguments of this earlier generation of clerical scholars 
with their unequaled command of scholastic philosophy and theology and their deep knowledge of Dante. Their arguments have typically disappeared from view or been distorted due to the almost universal reliance on the governing but questionable, as I've indicated in relation to the examples above, assumptions of the triumvirate of Nardi, Shilson and Foster. As part of this reappraisal, I'm currently completing with my colleague Patricia Kelly an edition and translation of the French Dominican Pierre Mandonet's seminal 1935 study of Dante, um, Dante the Theologian, um, a book rejected by critics and never until now translated into English. Uh, in this volume, Mandonet defends critically the universally established custom of placing Dante's theories in parallel with those of Aquinas. Mandelay underlines that such correspondences, however fruitful, do not imply a formal Thomanism, because St. Thomas is not simply a great leader of a school, but above all, the representative of Catholic teaching. St. Thomas hence finds common ground with all the great theologians, and his primary achievement was to better order this teaching and evidence it more perfectly. Moreover, Mandane distinguishes the sources from the shape of Dante's thought. While Mandane acknowledges that Dante, as a layman and an impoverished exile, may have had to search for solutions to certain problems in whatever theological sources were at hand, he nonetheless maintains that where possible, Dante drew on Aquinas' works, and where this was not possible, Dante conformed his thought to the one who was, in his eyes, his master. Although there may be differences here or there on questions of secondary importance, Mandonet insists that Dante follows Aquinas on key points of contested doctrine in the 13th century, and that the commentators are therefore on the right tracks who compare the doctrine of the great theologian and of the great poet to shed light on both. Mandane also argues that Dante conformed not just the content of his poem to the thought of Aquinas, but also took from Aquinas and from the field of theology key elements of his poem's form and interpretive framework. Dante is a theologian poet who treats theology, that is, through theology, through a properly theological as well as poetical technique. In preparation for my introduction to the new edition of Mandonet, an English translation, Dante the Theologian. I've published two articles, Interpreting Dante's Commedia, Competing Perspectives, which is essentially on the form and hermeneutics of Dante's poem, and Thomists at War, Pierre Mandonet, Etienne Gilson, and the Contested Relationship Between Aquinas and Dante's Thought, 1879-2021, which is essentially on the disputed content or doctrine of Dante's poem. And I believe that Lauren has, has circulated these essays to you. Did, did she circulate this to you? Um, and um, if you're interested in this reappraisal of a Thomistic approach to Dante's Commedia and in, and, and in exploring in more detail what I've discussed this afternoon, which I realize is quite complex, so you kind of need a bit of time to digest it, um, I direct you to these two articles, um, as well as perhaps to the Mandane volume in due course. So in conclusion, in this second more advanced talk today, I've addressed the contested issue of the relationship between Aquinas' and Dante's thought in the reception of Dante's works in the 20th century. I have sought to explain why and how a Catholic scholarly consensus in 1921 that there is a profound and fundamental harmony between Aquinas and Dante's thought and that Dante conformed his thought in general to Aquinas' master in philosophy and theology how that consensus was subsequently questioned and ultimately discredited as a myth by a series of scholarly interventions, especially influenced by the triumphant of the influential law lay scholars, Bruno Nardi and Etienne Jensen, and by the Dominican Kenon Foster. I've sought to demonstrate that the key discrepancies that these scholars identified between Aquinas' and Dante's thought are more apparent than actual, they typically derive either from a contentious interpretation of an element of Aquinas' thought itself, or from a contentious literal interpretive approach to Dante's poetic text. In these key respects, Dante, as we've shown, can in fact 
be shown to be embodying in poetry doctrines in profound harmony with Aquinas's theology and philosophy. In the second and third parts of this talk, I've thereby thought to defend critically the Thomas Dante position by responding to the strongest and most significant arguments levelled against it. Finally, I've suggested that in light of this, we should indeed reappraise the Thomas Dante interpretive tradition, which is far more sophisticated than its adversaries typically acknowledged, and the scholarly efforts which emerge from the great Leonine twin renaissance of Aquinas and Dante studies in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I hope that you on this retreat will be inspired by these two great passionate intellects and will learn to enjoy reading them together with confidence, the one illuminating the other in the future. Perhaps even some of you, a new generation of students and scholars, will help to contribute to this reappraisal and perhaps second renaissance of Aquinas and Dante. Let me conclude with the words of Dante in the Heaven of Wisdom, where on the departure of St Thomas Aquinas from the scene, he seems to identify Aquinas's doctrine with truth itself, describing the perfect likeness between Aquinas's words and the words of Beatrice through the most homely of images. Water in a round bowl makes ripples glide centre to rim or back from rim to centre as from within tis jarred or from outside. This image dropped into my mind instanter when Thomas's glorious life had said his say. Like an apt simile, it seemed to enter in likeness of the verbal interplay twixt Beatrice and him, for she, as suited her pressure, thus took up her cue straight away. Dal centro al cerchio, e si, dal cerchio al centro, muovesi l'acqua in un ritondo vaso, secondo che percossa fuori o dentro. Nella mia mente fe subito caso questo che io dico, siccome si tacque, la gloriosa vita di Tommaso. Per la similitudine che nacque del suo parlare di quel di Beatrice, a cui si comincia dopo lui piacque. Thank you. Okay, so the question is, is whether Foster considered that uh, Dante was not Thomas simply because he he adopted pagan culture or had a pagan understanding of things, something like that. So that's not what I was trying to say, but I can forgive you for for for, for suggesting it. Um, so let me give clarification. So um, in 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 the first talk I gave this morning, I said that the beginning of Dante's poem, surprise builds on surprise, okay? Because the first region we enter is this strange region of the neutrals, including neutral angels, and then we enter into limbo. Now, in standard Catholic doctrine um, of this time, um, uh, limbo had uh, two occupants, right? The first occupants were all the Jewish uh, um, patriarchs and believers, okay? And that part of limbo... Um, uh, becomes empty uh, at the harrowing of hell because Christ goes down and, and takes up with him. So that part of limbo is, 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 is empty. But a standard theological hypothesis in, this, in the 13th century was that uh, there was another group in limbo and that was the unbaptized infants. And the dispute about the unbaptized infants continues to this day. And, and there's a Vatican document from about 15 years ago. Um, so if you like, if you're, if you're looking at um, dogmatic eschatology um, if Dante had had a limbo and he says you know which just had a section of it which was empty and a section of it occupied by unbaptized in infants you say that's fine that's Thomistic that that's fine but he doesn't just do that he also has another region of limbo where he puts 
all these virtuous pagans, um, including philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, and um, uh, Socrates, but I mean, it even has Averroes, the commentator, who's, who's a Muslim commentator, um, but he also has the sort of great um, heroes of uh, principally of, of classical Rome, but, but some um, Greeks get in there as well. Um, uh, so that's the bit that if Dante was intending it as dogmatic eschatology, if Dante was trying to tell us in the afterlife, I think there will be a region where all these virtuous pagans are, that would certainly be opposed to Aquinas's thought and it would be opposed to St. Augustine's thought and it would be opposed to basically everyone's thought. And the point is that that's what Foster thought Dante was doing. Because Foster, like many scholars of his generation, took a very literal interpretive approach to the Commedia. They understood, of course, that the poem had a symbolic meaning, but they believed that, um, the, that a bit like with scripture, the foundational meaning is the literal one. Um, and in that respect, um, a lot of what then became problematic for Foster, you, you know, that, that you have a perfectibility of human nature without grace, he's deriving that from the existence of the virtuous pagan in limbo. Whereas what I would argue is that Dante is not intending that as dogmatic theology, but rather he's trying to um, explore and express in his poetic world, which is um, uh, an invented eschatology, the relationship between the natural and the supernatural order. And he decides to make the representative of the supernatural order, Lady Beatrice, Beatrice. Um, and uh, I also have a heretical view on Lady Beatrice that she was never a, a real woman, Vici Portinari, at all. It's purely symbolic. Okay, and that's also Mandane's view. Um, uh, when he comes to represent the natural order, he doesn't take lady philosophy as he does in some of his early poetry and the convivio. Instead, he takes virgin. Lots of good reasons for doing that. But one of the problems of that is that he has to put virtue, uh, 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 Virgil in this uh, limb of the virtuous pagans. Um, because you couldn't have a representative of philosophy um, and natural reason being in heaven. Uh, it, the, the whole point is this presents a, um, a place, if you like, of the natural order. And I think that's what he's trying to do. And that relates also to these questions of natural and supernatural end. Because in my view, uh, the limb of the virtuous pagans is Dante's way of representing in the afterlife what is actually a this-worldly natural end, a natural <coughs> end. Um, uh, yes, yeah. Um, so, you... so the question is a very good one. <laughs> um, and, um, I, I, I have my answer ready, but I've got to remember the question now. Um, uh, um, so, um, you know, Foster thinks of this tension um, in Hopkins between the, the poet and the priest. Uh, but in Dante, Foster perceives it more to being a poet of, of secular, secular things as opposed to a poet of religious um, things. How does Dante then relate to the current of poetry, which saw earthly love as leading to the spiritual? Mm, very good question. Um, so... Um, there was, in Dante's time, um, different currents uh, of love poetry, um, and uh, including the courtly love tradition, uh, where you had a real woman, um, but uh, that he had a kind of idealised understanding of love. Um, you also have the Dolce Stil Novo, which Dante was um, you know, seen as a kind of great exponent of. Um, and a question there, so scholars in the 20th century and, and almost all scholars now would say that um, literary device is in the terms that you're describing and that's how Foster sees it. So Foster sees that when Dante is referring to Beatrice, he's referring to a real human woman who existed in Florence, um, uh, who died in 1292. And this is really important because it was through his love for this particular girl, Beatrice, who met when he was nine, saw for the first time he was nine, um, 
that then became spiritualized and it led to his love for God. So um, that that's an interpretation. And similarly, say, when Guido Cavalcanti's first friend is talking about Giovanna, it's a similar thing. There's a real woman there. And through the love for the real concrete woman, it leads to a spiritual dimension. So, um, uh, yes, um, I have a 20,000 word response to that moment, which I've written. I've got to cut it down to 15,000 words, which took me a while um, as an article on, on this point. But, but my own view is that that's not what Dante is doing. Um, and that um, uh, these ladies in Dante's poetry are purely symbolic. Um, and so it's not about moving from a, a sort of earthly love for a particular woman and then that leading to a divine love. Um, and that view that I have is, isn't quixotic to me. It's in the tradition. Um, Mandane makes that case. Um, uh, one of the fascinating things, I mean, Mandane has his own particular interpretation um, in the first part of this book, whereby he thinks that Dante actually um, was a cleric and a Dominican and had had a Dominican vocation and he lost his Dominican vocation. So that's a very particular interpretation. But one of the things that I'm showing is that, and he gives interesting reasons for that, um, but one of the things that I'm um, showing is that although that's a very specific interpretation, Mandanes, of the purely symbolic interpretation of Beatrice, in the late 1930, 20th centuries, the purely symbolic interpretation of Beatrice was standard. Right? You had the realist positions, you also had different kinds of, but it was standard. What's very strange is after the Second World War, the purely symbolic interpretation has just gone. No one talks about it now. And everyone, if you read any introduction to Dante's poem, it'll say, Dante met Beatrice Portinari in the, you know, when he was nine, he went through the streets of Florence. Um, there is no documentary evidence of that whatsoever. That is, a, that was first, um, I think, invented by Boccaccio. There's no other evidence for it. Um, but then it becomes part of an interpretation tradition and then it just steamrolls. So uh, you, you read it in your introduction, well, it must be true. But actually, if you look at the, the historical evidence, there just isn't any. So the question is, um, can you elaborate more on what, what you mean by the interpretation of Dante as an Averroist? Um, and this is a huge um, question. Um, what happened when Aristotle entered the European universities in, in the 12th, 13th centuries is Aristotle came to the Christian theologians through the commentaries of um, the great um, Islamic philosopher Averroes. And uh, I've just, we had a parish pilgrimage. I mean, it was really a holiday to um, southern Spain, to Andalusia's Golden Triangle, including Cordoba. So, um, in the evening when my kids had gone to bed, you know, I made my pilgrimage to the statue of Avarice and I had a picture of myself. And then early the next morning, I did another pilgrimage before we had to leave off to the statue of Moses Maimonides, so that incredible medieval Jewish thinker as well. Um, so Avarice was this absolutely extraordinary thinker, uh, Muslim thinker, and it was through him and through his commentaries that um, the Christian theologians in the 12th century came to understand um, Aristotle's thought. Um, there were certain um, interpretations of Aristotle that Avarice took, um, I mean, a, a tiny minority of them, that were um, opposed to the Christian faith. And someone like Aquinas considered that there were also um, mistaken interpretations of Aristotle. Um, the term Latin Avarice or Avarice then in, say, the University of Paris in the 13th century um, tends to be used now to refer to um, philosophers who um, followed more strictly Averroes' interpretations of Aristotle, even when they, um, those interpretations um, conflicted with um, Christian um, dogma. Um, because Dante places Seizure of Brabant um, as the last of the 12 passionate intellects, the intellectuals in, in the first garland of the heaven of wisdom. Um, some scholars have, have thought that, um, or have used that as, a, as an indication that Dante himself was an avarist um, because Caesar of Brabant held some of these interpretations. Um, Mandanay, I mean, this is another book I'd love to do an English translation of, um, 
but Mandane wrote a huge book on Cedro Brabant. Then Bruno Nardi, this important Italian scholarship, wrote uh, his doctoral dissertation on Cedro Brabant, and then uh, someone called Fernand van Steenberg, and a really important Thomas, wrote another book on uh, Cedro Brabant. So it's a, it's a big question um, whether Cedro himself uh, uh, came to change his view uh, on, I mean, particularly it comes with the unicity of the potential intellect during his life. Um, but um, uh, someone like Nardi and Gilson and Foster, um, well, all of them in different, to different degrees, considered that Dante had at least toyed with some of these doctrines, these avarice doctrines. And as I said, both Etienne and Gilson. I mean, Etienne and Gilson is like the most important um, lay uh, 20th century historian of medieval philosophy. And he quite simply thought that Dante was an avarist in philosophy and a Thomist in theology. Um, as I suggested, I think that's mistaken. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.